For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up. Season 2, Episode 52 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami starts now. This week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. The question this paper is trying to answer is, can we use liver stiffness measurement by MRE to predict heart outcomes? And this means cirrhosis in those who do not have cirrhosis at their initial MRE. And in those who have cirrhosis but have compensated SAGE, can we predict decompensation? And lastly, in those who have decompensated cirrhosis, can we predict outcomes, which in this population is largely death or liver transplantation? In my view, this is the direction that we need to go in because this will take us away from biopsy because it'll give us multimodality information about stiffness as a proxy of fibrosis and measures of liver function that will give a much better indication of what's going to happen to the patient in the future. It's not a one cutoff or a two cutoff with a gray zone type of situation. It is a number that we can use in practice to individualize patients' management or counseling to use that stiffness at that time to predict a patient's future at whatever year we decide. What additional information do we need to move away from biopsy and use MR elastography for the context of use of therapeutic efficacy and long-term patient outcome. I guess in my own mind, the gap that's the biggest with MRE is knowing what the magnitude of effect changes to correlate with a one-stage improvement in fibrosis. I've been thinking about how long the Framingham study had to run before people started believing what it had to say. It took a couple of decades before people were willing to trust that data. We need to impose some kind of discipline on our expectations. The data is only going to so far, so we need to be practical about the fastest way to get there. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guests, hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders Professors Alina Allen and Ian Rowe, as they discuss new insights into fibrosis, this week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. This episode is the third in a series designed to really take a deep look at where science is taking us right now on different levels. If you remember two weeks ago, Lars Johansson from Antares Medical came on and talked about some advanced concepts around different ways to do imaging and things that he felt we should be imaging. Last week, Scott Friedman came on and took us through a history of the stellate cell and a really broad look at what we are learning about different ways to think about the liver. And this week, we have as our lead guest, Alina Allen from Mayo Clinic who's with us in spring and is back again to talk about some of the additional work that that group has been doing around using MRE as a way to predict uh, outcomes for patients. Pivotally important. Alina, welcome back. Thank you, Roger. Thank you so much for having me again. It's our pleasure. For those of you who want to feel sympathy for somebody, Alina was telling us before we got started that in Rochester, Minnesota, it's getting frighteningly close to 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that's zero Celsius for those who refuse to look at temperature the way Americans do. And it's not even November yet. So our sympathies are with her. And then we also have Ian Rowe with us again today. Ian, how 
how are you today? Oh, very good, thank you. Okay, and um, what is going on in Leeds that's of merit? Well, today is the first day back after being away from the office for a week, having been away with a family, spent some time in London doing touristy things, which after the last 18 months in some ways was a bit strange. We went to two shows and spent several hours in a crowded theatre feeling almost back to normal. So today was spent catching up and all of the things that you don't like doing when you go back to work. I was in one of those kinds of events yesterday and you feel almost back to normal and then you walk away and say, oh my gosh, was that a super spreader event? And then Louise wasn't planning to be with us, but she is because unfortunately her husband was a little bit under the weather. Louise, how's Portugal? Portugal's marvellous. Lovely warm weather, crystal blue sea and a decent temperature to swim in. So I've done some of that. With all that said, why don't we just kick off one particular good thing that's happened in the last week that you didn't mention yet, if I gave you a chance to do so. And at the end of that, we will rotate around to Alina, who will share with us some of their recent work and what's in it. Brave one, go first. Let's see. A couple quick hits from me. Number one, went and visited my freshman daughter at SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, over the weekend. And she was invited to try out for the SMU cheerleading team. And uh, while not officially notified, it does appear that she made the team. So that's an exciting piece of information that I hope I don't jinx because I said it here before she officially was notified. And I don't think there will be any of her cheer coaches listening to the podcast, so we're probably okay there. But that makes Dad very happy. Then on the academic front, there were three papers that came out last week that I would reference the readership or the listenership to. Number one is a seminal paper put up by the Nash CRN and New England Journal of Medicine, where Arun is the first author, looking at about 1,700 patients followed for a mean of four years through the Nash CRN and looking at outcomes. Some provocative bit of information and that did not validate that F2s actually progressed at the same rate as historically in other cross-sectional, well, in many cross-sectional data sets where we've picked up F2 as being at risk of progression. There's some discussion about what that means, but I think it's important to note that patients were only followed a mean of four years and it's hard to progress in F2 that quickly. So that will be a topic for another day. In addition, the Lanner Fibrinor paper came out in New England Journal of Medicine and the paper we've mentioned here before in abstract form, the one that Arun Senyal presented at AASLD last year, showing that fibrosis improvement of at least one stage correlated with improvement in outcomes was now published online in hepatology. So a good academic week for the field of NASH and then personally a good week for my daughter. Excellent. Next. Oh, I'll jump in next. My middle stepdaughter is going to be a ski instructor in Austria in a couple of weeks' time, which was all delayed for a year or two with COVID. So she's dead excited and it'll be a great experience. So we may even go skiing in Austria. to wind her up. <laughs> well, we, we, could, we could put an event over there or a, or a joy weekend if you want a whole bunch of people to wind her up at once. I'm sure we can get volunteers. Okay. Ian or Alina, go ahead. I can continue on the daughter theme because the highlight of my last week was my first mother-daughter trip. Just the two of us. I have two girls. I took my oldest one with me for her promised 10th birthday trip. She's 11 and a half. So she's been patiently waiting for a year and a half because of COVID. So because she's now naturally immunized, I took her to Connecticut to kind of chase the Gilmore Girls adventures for those in the United States who are familiar with this show. We had a lovely time. We found out how lovely Connecticut is in fall, visited Yale, and 
stayed at a bed and breakfast. So it was just really, really nice. Great, Ian. And I think just to, to fin- finish off the family theme, it's this past week being away from the office, but more importantly, away with the family, doing things in a, in a big city that we'd not been able to do for such a long time was really very refreshing. And I know that the children enjoyed it a great deal, being able to see the sights and do things that they'd just not been able to do for the last 18 months. So terrific. And uh, no apology for, for sharing that highlight twice. Okay, so I will stay with the family theme then. And I will say that, as most of you know, my son and daughter-in-law, and they took my granddaughter to Texas about a year and a half ago. And they've decided to come back. And they have now found a house and we'll be back in time for U.S. Thanksgiving. And we've explained to our granddaughter that we have a couple things waiting for her and she's virtually beside herself. And frankly, I didn't even realize how much I'd missed her until I realized they're coming back. So that's been a great thing. We all have happy family memories to work on. Let's go from the warm and personal to the exciting and professional. And Belina, the one thing I didn't mention is that we've had a couple of musical guest sightings since you were on most notably, it turns out that Scott Friedman played the trombone in the Israeli day band, as you know, because you heard the episode already. <laughs> and I heard about the tuba offer, too. So trombone and tuba duet. Looking forward to that at next day. SLD. You're going to bring up a R- Romanian folk song, which you will sing. We will get Naeem to back you up on the out instead of a lead guitar, and, and we'll have the whole thing covered. Steven will play bongos. It'll be perfect, right? I'm in. <laughs> I, I'm really good with cymbals. I can bang cymbals together. The idea that you can make noise with the best of them is not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alina, floor is yours. Please welcome, Please uh, take us through your uh, your article. Take five, seven minutes and do that. Yeah, thank you so much for, for giving us the, the opportunity to talk. I'll preface by saying that the largest part of this work in this specific paper, maybe I should mention it, the paper is MRE for Prediction of Long-Term Progression and Outcome in Chronic Liver Disease. This is a retrospective study from Mayo Clinic. I am one of the authors. The senior author is Dr. Sudakar Venkatesh. He is a prominent radiologist from Mayo Clinic. And the first author is Dr. Tolga Gidener, who was my research fellow a year or so ago, is a very promising internal medicine resident now. So this paper was recently published in Hepatology. And this is an extension of what we had worked on in a specific NAFLD population. This paper expands it to liver disease of all etiologies. And what the question this paper is trying to answer is, can we use liver stiffness measurement by MRE to predict heart outcomes? And this means cirrhosis in those who do not have cirrhosis at their initial MRE. And in those who have cirrhosis but have compensated stage, can we predict decompensation? And lastly, in those who have decompensated cirrhosis, can we predict outcomes, which in this population is largely death or liver transplantation? So this includes not only fatty liver disease, but chronic liver disease of all etiologies. And this has taken advantage of the large historical data we have in the database using MRE, which, as you may know was implemented in practice in 2007, starting here at Mayo Clinic. So in this specific paper, we looked at the first two to three years of using MRE, so between 2007 and 2009, and we followed these people up to 2020. So we have a very long opportunity of time to look at specific outcomes. And these outcomes were abstracted from individual chart review, not ICD code-based. So really looking into details into every 
every person's historical progression over time. We had a total of over 1,200 people that are included in this fashion. And the large part of liver disease etiologies was viral hepatitis, which is not surprising for those times. There were over 400 people with hepatitis C and hepatitis B, followed by NAFL. There were over 300 people with fatty liver disease. And then the other etiologies, which would be alcohol-related liver disease, cholestatic liver diseases, and other. And these people were separated in these three groups. And I think the main results that we found were that if we look at liver stiffness measurement by MRE as a predictor of outcomes in the definition that I mentioned before, it had a very good accuracy to predict the best accuracy actually being in those who do not have cirrhosis, which are the people who I think at this time were not quite sure how to follow, how often to monitor, or how to best predict their outcomes. As, as Stephen mentioned earlier, even for F2s, now we have very little data in terms of what percentage at what time can we predict. And if we look at that specific population alone, using MRE had an accuracy with a, with a statistics of 0.82 predict future outcomes. And these are 8 to 10 year follow-up on a, on a median. So when we looked at different other covariates that would help LSM to have improvement in accuracy prediction, there was not one that stood out to say that it is better than, than liver stiffness measurement. In the population who has compensated cirrhosis, the prediction was a bit less than that in non-cirrhotic populations, but liver stiffness measurement still stands as a very good predictor of outcomes. It had the lowest performance and decompensated state. And I think that's not surprising because in those with hepatic decompensation, the liver function is probably telling us more than the liver stiffness. And this is why we use MELT score for liver transplantation priority and so on. So in that particular population, we found that liver stiffness measurement is not that useful. And I don't think it's used in clinical practice currently if a patient already has a decompensating event that we know of. The last thing I'll mention before we open to the discussion is, again, the emphasis of what a biomarker can tell us is what I would draw as probably the most important piece of this paper and the previous paper as well. It's not a one cutoff or a two cutoff with a gray zone type of situation. It is a number that we can use in practice to individualize patients' management or counseling to use that stiffness at that time to predict a patient's future at whatever year we decide. We can plot these probabilities for two years, three years, four years, whatever is of interest and say, based on your current status of your liver, based on the liver stiffness, your probability of having development of cirrhosis, for example, in a non-cirrhotic is, is X percent. In clinical practice, this is what we make the most use of, out of a biomarker like that. And that's probably one of my most clinically applicable takeaways from this study. Thanks, Linda. That was fantastic and really precise. Let me throw the floor open first. Stephen, Ian, Louise, questions, comments? This is tremendous work that kind of builds off what you've already done. Just for the listenership, can you give us specific numbers that we can begin to burn into our brain based on all of this data you're generating that are the numbers we need to know relative to determining progression to cirrhosis? What's the right number for cirrhosis based on your work? Building off an MRE of five, for instance, and predicting the probability of decompensation at three years being 20%. If the MRE is eight, it's 40%. Did you see that that was validated in the work that you did subsequently? Just to maybe a little bit more, if you can give us some takeaway numbers that, that the audience 
ants should kind of try to burn into their brain based on your work? Sure. So if we were to look at what the predictive ability of LSM is in this specific paper that includes liver disease etiologies of any type, compared to when we look specifically at NAFLD, as we looked in that previous paper in the CGH, the results are very comparable. To give a specific number, as you said, uh, for people who do not have cirrhosis, each liver stiffness range from two to, let's say, five gives you a over two-fold increase in risk of cirrhosis in the future. So you can apply that difference from two to three, three to four. If they move up from one to the other, its hazard ratio is 2.38 to be exact, which is over two. In the NAFLD paper, it was 2.9, I think. So it was a little bit higher, but also in the two range. So I'd say the number to remember is each incremental increase in kilopascal by one by MRE increases the prediction of cirrhosis in the future by over twofold. For the cirrhotic population who is in a compensated stage, in this specific paper, each one kilopascal increased the risk of decompensation by 22%, which is very close to what we found in the NAFLD, which was about 30%. So yes, the numbers agreed, which was a good validation type of story in our mind. As we look at different signals from LSM for different etiologies, I don't think there's a lot of a different message there. The bottom line is that liver stiffness gives us a piece of information that can be applied not only in NAFLD, but overall in a broad type of liver disease. There is one other paper if we talk about subtypes of liver diseases, which is cholestatic liver disease, which my colleague, Dr. John Eaton, looked specifically at uh, that one specific population of PSC. It was a little bit of a different statistical analysis, but I think the message was similar. Liver stiffness gives you an individualized probability of cirrhosis or whatever outcome that would be based on the current liver stiffness. Okay. Alina, were there any confounding variables that would change those numbers? Let's just say, and you may not have this population, but if you were looking at Hispanics compared to Caucasians, you looked at women versus men over postmenopausal versus premenopausal. Were there any diabetics versus non-diabetics? Was there anything where that data didn't hold true? In other words, the twofold increased risk of progression to cirrhosis for every one KPA increase in a non-cirrhotic, and then the 22% rate of progression to decompensation in a cirrhotic. Was there anything that threw that off that I mentioned? We didn't have the luxury of looking at Hispanics, and that's, again, kind of the major thing that comes in every theme, except for maybe your Texas population where it's enriched with that. So if we find answers in subgroups, you are the person. Here, there are mostly Caucasians, non-Hispanic ethnicity, so we did not have that opportunity. We looked at sex as an independent predictor of cirrhosis, and that was not statistically significant. We did not look at diabetes specifically or to see if this prediction is different in diabetics versus non-diabetic, but that's a good point. I do not have that answer. That's all right. It doesn't take away from the paper at all. Before I turn it over to Ian or Louise for their questions, just one more tidbit. Since this comes from the Mayo Clinic, I feel like I'm okay to ask this question. If it were from my Texas cohort, maybe not so much, but did you look at genetic variances at all? PNPLA3, HSD17, beta 13, or any of the other? No. Another area with opportunities, how does genetic makeup impact these findings? This was clinical data. This was based on all the patients who underwent MRE through the routine clinical practice of liver disease estimation. So we do not have stored blood or serum or anything that's not part of the clinical information. Somebody might ask you that question eventually, so I thought I would just ask it on the podcast. This question 
question will be solved as part of a prospective cohort. So we should have an answer about this as relates to MRE and liver stiffness, but not at this time. Ian, Louise, go ahead. This is great because it speaks a lot up to the development of more personalized risk stratification for patients who've got fatty liver disease and, and other liver diseases. And I was interested to hear last week when you were talking to Scott Friedman about the yolk that is liver biopsy. It's more like a millstone, I think. We're sort of stuck with it and trying to get that from around our necks is going to be a challenge. Uh, some of the analyses that you've done, Alina, are interesting because they still speak to the want to tie it to a biopsy and this and progression to cirrhosis as being an outcome. And be interested to hear what Louise thinks about that as a patient relevant outcome. I guess that from my point of view, managing patients, it's that risk of decompensation that's really critical in making treatment decisions. And you alluded to that a bit when you were talking about the risk that you might explain to a patient based on their liver stiffness. And, and I'd be interested to hear whether you talk to them about development of cirrhosis or really whether you talk to them more about complications related to liver disease, because ultimately that's what's most important to the patient, I guess. Absolutely. What's lacking in clinical practice currently is that we put the non-cirrhotics in a bag, say for clinical trials, where we really try to distinguish F2, F3, and, and try to get as much information from that, which is great. But from the clinical practice standpoint, if you don't have cirrhosis, it's kind of a blanket recommendation of do this, talk about weight loss, and we'll follow up in X amount of time. This is where there's an opportunity to individualize the management more because if you don't have cirrhosis, but your liver stiffness by MRE, but you know, transit elastography can probably give a similar story. If the liver stiffness is two versus if the liver stiffness is 3.5, yes, they both don't have cirrhosis, but their risk of developing future complications is very different. Having a graph like this or an imaging like this, where you can actually plot and say, whatever X percent we decide as a community that is important from cost effectiveness type of an aspect, and we say your risk to reach that threshold is X percent versus much lower, then one, the aggressiveness of lifestyle changes, medications, weight loss, surgery, or other things would be different, and the length of monitoring will be different. We do not need to watch these patients with elastography every year. That will not be cost effective by any sort of elastography, even if we consider fibroscan. And looking at the small number of events, which are heart events like cirrhosis and decompensation in a, even a cohort like this, or even in the NASH CRN cohort that Stephen mentioned, you follow these people for some time and you have a small number of events if we put the non-cirrhotics in a bag. That's where we need to distinguish who are those who need to be followed maybe yearly versus who can we step back and call in five years for another elastography, not for weight loss, but for elastography, which is where the cost is. That's what we try to distinguish in that previous paper that, where we included NAFLDs to say that if your stiffness is 2.5 or less, we do not need to look at it again in five years because your chance of having cirrhosis in that time is less than 0.5% or something. I can't remember the number, but it was very, very low. That's where the opportunity of personalized and, and a clinical pathway of how do we use these tools that give us some information so that we don't waste cost of healthcare, but also personalized so we don't miss cirrhosis development or other decompensating events. So I agree with a lot of that. And I guess that the reason I'm here today is that we have a study that's in revision using transient elastography rather than MRE in a very similar fashion to what you've done, but containing just over 3,000 patients looking at outcomes. And that's patients who had an ACLD phenotype, so fibrous scans of 10 or more. And then you can map them through their disease trajectory, development of varices, decompensation, HCC, and ultimately mortality, either from liver disease or from other causes. We see very similar things to you, that there's this gradual increase in risk as your liver stiffness increases. And once you get almost to a tipping point, the liver stiffness is then less useful 
useful, but measures of liver function become more useful and probably complementary. And you see that in the way that you've incorporated the MELD score into some of your analyses. In my view, this is the direction that we need to go in because this will take us away from biopsy because it'll give us multimodality information about stiffness as a proxy of fibrosis and measures of liver function, whether that's the MELD score or other measures, that will give a much better indication of what's going to happen to the patient in the future that is much better than binary cirrhosis, non-cirrhosis, and is better than the ordinal F2, F3, F1. You know, it'd be interesting to hear what discussions you have around the CRN natural history piece and that paper from Arun Sanyal that Stephen mentioned before in the highlight of mine next week will probably be the be the reading of those those manuscripts having come back from holiday. Taking the non-invasive testing together with that information based on the biopsy cohorts will really take us a long way forward. I agree. The highlight that I draw from that, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know if we want to go into that paper to discuss, there's a lot of points in that. What non-invasive estimation would be helpful, what I caught is that F2 or less population, which is the majority, even in a registry type of a data set with liver biopsy from patients who are seen in hepatology. So the spectrum of people who get to a hepatologist are a bit on the more severe spectrum. Even in that population in which the majority was F2 or less, the number of events were very few. So what do we do with those people, not only in the hepatology clinic, but in the primary care clinic, where again, the majority of those people will be less than clinically significant fibrosis? How do we apply these measures in terms of monitoring because liver biopsy will not be feasible? FIB4 is less than ideal for little granular progression of disease. So how can we, if we take these procedures into practice and individualize the follow-up and the aggressiveness of disease is where the opportunity stands. Louis, you want to go ahead? I'm very interested to hear all of the points there. But um, the one thing that I look at probably from more recent experiences with my father-in-law is that when we can predict outcomes and deterioration, but with the non-invasive tests um, like the MRE, like the Fibroscan, if we can do that earlier in a time point, we then get the opportunity to really individualise patient care. But we also get the opportunity to individualise for some patients the process of terminal care at an earlier time point, which allows us to do things better. If I think to my own units that I've worked in, we have never talked about putting wills into place. We have never talked about how people manage the last few years in a way that maybe we as healthcare professionals focus on the what we can do, how we can prolong. And we do need to stay focused on that. But the earlier time points that we can get diagnostics in to pick up a progressive disease to enable us to manage the late stage of people's lives in a better way and that they can manage their lives to put things into order. This is an added advantage to non-invasive tests that give us warning of what is going to get there. Not every patient gets transplanted, so we do have to manage that better. I don't know, Ian, you might know whether there is any unit currently in the UK that talks about how you manage your wills. Have you got this? Have you got that? They're uncomfortable conversations for us to have as healthcare professionals. They're important conversations for us and charities and advocates to be having with families as a result of how 
much better we are becoming at being able to say when decompensation is going to happen. This MRE paper has done that and the grades and that 22% increase and things like that. People need to know that in advance. I mean, just in, in reply to Louise's point, the palliative care and end-of-life care planning in patients who've got advanced cirrhosis is certainly something that people are increasingly recognising and we do a bit of that, although I wouldn't say that we were leading at all around the time of transplant assessment, particularly in parallel planning, hoping for the best but planning for the worst because it's important that patients understand the severity of their illness at that point. Earlier than that, where there's a risk of decompensation, it's probably still quite difficult to have those conversations because it's not clear what's going to happen and something else might happen to the patient and these sorts of things. And I think people would find that quite challenging. I agree that it's something that we need to remember because, as you say, a lot of the other interventions that we have for patients who've got very advanced liver disease are are not that great in all honesty. And, and the sorts of treatments that Scott Friedman talked about last week for end-stage disease, we're really not that much further on. So other than transplantation, it really is managing what's going to happen in the future. And as I say, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. Stephen or Alina, if either one of you could comment on, from what you see, how the way the U.S. is managing palliative issues looks different than what Louise and Ian just raised. And I have a question for you, Alina, but I can come back to that in a minute. Let's touch this one first. Yes, this, the palliative care and the futility of a treatment is an area that we need more work in the United States as well. As it comes to management of those people, we need pathways. We need to figure out when is beyond what. Even in transplantation, we don't have a lot of that piece of the actual benefit of a transplant. I don't know about the role of non-invasive testing with elastography in that particular population because typically we talk about a patients with decompensated liver disease or advanced cancer for which liver stiffness measurement is not the best predictor for. It's a little bit beyond that. It's liver function, it's events, it's the patient's overall number of comorbidities and severity. So the conversation is different there. I, I don't know about a role specifically as a central or for non-invasive testing there. The role there is clinical pathways. When do we decide to not do the, all the invasive tests and procedures? When do we involve palliative care? In what way do we have this conversation? How do we involve the family? This is an area that I think there are some of our colleagues who do some very nice work in that area, and hopefully we'll hear more about that in the next few years. My only comment was going to be that I know that there are diseases in the state's oncology, certainly where a lot more thought is put into this particular issue because of the derivation of disease and the likelihood that it will wind up in death, frankly. So it, it's not that examples might not be out there. I can see why they would not have come to this neighborhood yet. The good news, I think, is that we have places to learn from, even if we'll be learning using a different set of criteria than what we produce in, in hepatology or for fatty liver. When I say to a patient, you've got cirrhosis, that has an impact. When I say to a patient, you've got liver cancer, almost always that has a much greater impact, even though often it's the cirrhosis and liver failure that defines the patient's outcome, not the cancer. Some of that's societal, understanding what cancer means, but not understanding what cirrhosis means, helping people to understand how bad liver disease can be so that those decisions can be made and those issues can be talked about in fullness of time. People get time to think about them. It's much, much better that way to be for people to think about what's going to happen in the future 
with some knowledge. It's that knowledge that's often absent and that's exemplified by the nod of the head when you say you've got cirrhosis and the shake of the head and the tears when you say you've got cancer. Ian, let me ask you just more specifically about your paper that you commented on. You know, just simplistically, we often will have conversations in the U.S., or at least I will, with my referring providers or primary care, even GI colleagues, and they want to know how Fibroscan correlates with MR elastography. And simplistically, although Alina is probably going to cringe here, is I just say take the Fibroscan and divide by three, and that gives you a rough estimate of what the MRE score would be. If we were to reverse engineer this thing, are you finding similar results relative to Alina's data? If you take her MRE numbers and multiply by three, do we get a rough estimate of similar type odds ratios of progression and percentage rates of progression based on what she had mentioned? I don't think it's quite as simple as that. So we find in alcohol-related liver disease and in NAFL that the rates of decompensation in patients who've got liver stiffness of less than 20 kilopascals are really quite low. It's quite short time horizon, three to five years, but they're really quite low. And, you know, so you're looking at stiffness values in excess of that, well in excess of that for substantial rates of decompensation. So it's not the same. And I don't think you can do a simple calculation to work it out there. We've got no experience and no access to MRE. So I can't give you a comparative number for patients that we've that we've examined. And so there's no direct comparative data. Well, hopefully Litmus can help us address that a little bit because we'll be doing both in that cohort of patients. Can I shift and ask Alina Roger about applications relative to studies? Yeah, please. I've got one kind of lingering question in my mind, but this conversation may clarify that. So go ahead and I can come back to mine later if I need to. As we begin to look at these longer term outcomes, studies and move away from subpart H approval, and we we look at evaluating how drugs change a patient relative to how they feel, function, or survive. We all know that subpart H is conditional approval. It's a surrogate to predict an outcome. And then ultimately, we have to go on to show that drug X prevents progression from MELDs less than 15 to more than 15 to decompensation, transplant, cirrhosis, death, interestingly, liver cancer is not one of the classic endpoints that we follow. Alina, do you envision a study where we could use MRE as a companion to liver biopsy in a non-serotic population where you still would have your requirement to enter the trial of an F2, F3, but you would also get MR elastography at baseline and your endpoint would no longer be histopathologic. It would be an MRE progression to greater than X because it greater than X, that correlates to MELDs greater than 15 or progression to cirrhosis. Are we to that point yet? And if we're not, what does it take to get us there? And just some comments around evolving study design as we begin to think outside of the box and beyond the biopsy, but not yet fully away from the biopsy necessarily for enrollment criteria, but maybe not using biopsy on the back end of the study. Does that make sense? Absolutely. The reason the current criteria is NASH and no improvement in fibrosis and NAS score and, and so on is because that's what we had. I liked how the previous podcast discussion went around why NAS score is, is because this is the only thing people can agree on. But then the fibrosis piece is because this, this is the only thing we could correlate with outcomes. So naturally, the endpoint of these trials were these two pieces. What can people agree on that correlates with maybe disease severity? And then the fibrosis aspect, which we know correlates with outcomes. You mentioned before, as long as we're going to be stuck in the same circle, we're going to 
to not advance the field because there's still not a lot of correlation between pathologists or uh, agreement between these outcomes. To step away from that little granular biopsy or histological type of anchor for entry or for outcomes, then we need to move to something, one that people can agree on that gives you the same answer every time you look and non-invasive tests like liver stiffness does that. The degree of agreement between pathologists or in the same test measuring at different intervals on the same patient is very, very good in MRE at least. And then something that correlates with outcomes that is not fibrosis stage, which is what these papers are showing on a very large large number of patients with follow-up of up to 10 years. So I think this connection between what we currently use to what we need to move in the future is starting to get made. How do we move that into the clinical trials? It needs to be started gradually, as you said, probably at the beginning, maybe correlated with biopsy for entry, but then maybe not anchoring the no-go or go to that NAS score or that NASH resolution where the pathologist cannot agree if they look at it twice. Can we do that with a non-invasive test like liver stiffness and say, if the liver stiffness has improved, maybe there's a signal that the drug is working. Or if it has progressed over X amount, and again, this has to be an arbitrary number that we all agree on, then the drug is not working if we follow the patient over a long period of time. I think it's prime time for this because these studies with large amount of data show that there is trusted correlation between stiffness and outcomes. Why aren't we moving there? I don't know, but I I think it's prime time for that. Okay. So if you were to put your thinking cap on and say, okay, what additional information do we need to move away from biopsy and use MR elastography for the context of use of therapeutic efficacy and long-term patient outcomes? What do you think that would be? And let let me first ask you, I guess in my own mind, the gap that's the biggest with MRE is knowing what the magnitude of effect changes to correlate with a one-stage improvement in fibrosis. Because if you were to connect the dots, we know that fibrosis progression is linked to an outcome. We know that a one-stage improvement in fibrosis is linked to improved outcomes, at least from the Stellar 4 and the Simtuzumab trial. So what MRE change correlates to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis? I think if we're able to use that, then we could have a conversation with the regulatory authorities around an endpoint, a subpart H endpoint that's non-invasive. It would be if you've got a 0.6 change in MRE over 52 weeks, that's linked to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis. It might be that we need to use AI digital pathology to help us define that a little bit more we now know that roughly a 17% improvement in collagen content links to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis. That's unpublished data, but it's data that's that's been generated and is out there to share. But but what what is that MRE change that correlates to that 17% improvement? I think that's where we need to do a little bit more digging. And this is my call or request for pharma to include MRE so we can begin to correlate MRE to a change in histology. So to give you the correlative on the MRE world of that 17% in collagen, the number on the MRE side is 19%. So from the quality improvement studies, when these guidances were made on the MRE, a true change in liver stiffness measurement of 19% correlate with one stage of fibrosis. So we know that from the initial studies. It can be, we have that data, 19%. That's in all etiologies. It's interesting 
interesting how it's almost the same number, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. So there is that data. There is also an opportunity to keep validating it as we move forward. But we have something where a trial can be designed based on these numbers. If we enroll a patient population with a mean MRE of four and we drop it to 3.2, that in essence is that 20% change. Correct. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Now, have you looked at MRE progression and its association with progression to MELDs greater than 15? Not in this trial. When I've tried to look at this progression of MELD over 15 in large data sets, and I've used the Rochester Epidemiology data set for that, where we have more than 5,000 people, I found that it's it's not maybe outside of a registry trial in real world data sets is not very trustworthy. Because if you take that increase of MELD score above 15 at any time point in their follow-up, and we have follow-up of 20 years in this population, 20 plus, that could be an acute thing from a bile duct stone or from some sort of drug-induced liver injury or from an infection where the bilirubin can increase or from acute kidney injury. So unless you have a vetted MELD score of above 15, which stays there, then you can't really trust large data sets with this. So in this particular two papers, we have not used that as a correlate of liver disease progression because of what I found in the, the larger data set of real world. So that's interesting. The whole thing is really interesting. And, and Stephen, you actually have circled about 355 degrees around the question that I hope we'd get around if I didn't ask for the word good. It strikes me that if you've got a fairly constant relationship between two variables, right, then the viability of those variables will depend on exactly how high or how low the coefficient variance is and how good a job you can do of defining events that would cause the coefficient of variance to increase. So if what we're saying here is that the relationships hold pretty well across multiple different kind of related phenomena, the coefficient of variance is pretty low. And when using your MELD score example, when things pop up, it tends to be because of some acute or discontinuous event and that things might, and you can rule out acute discontinuous events that in fact, your relationships are strong. Stephen, I think that takes you to the place that you were asking about, which is now you have a couple of variables where once you check the box and go, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, the data in the rest of the population should be pretty reliable as long as it's consistent. That's the statistician view, not a medical statistician view, but... No, I agree. I agree. If you were stepping back and saying, where are we at today relative to where we want to go? There's a lot of traction we can make with MR elastography in the field of NASH and in the field of liver disease in general. But I would say the biggest challenge we have in NASH drug development is the liver biopsy. And until we can sort out the variability, whether that's sampling variability, intra-intra-observer variability, regression to the mean, you name it, we're going to need to look very hard at how we can quickly develop the data around certain non-invasive tests like MRE to evaluate these three contexts of use, the diagnosis of the at-risk patient, monitoring therapeutic efficacy, and long-term outcomes. And I would say that the data that Mayo and Alina and others are generating have have really helped us on the diagnosis of the at-risk NASH patient and, and prediction of outcomes. Where I think we need to do a little more work is on monitoring therapeutic efficacy in the setting of NASH with specific drugs. And it's been a little unfortunate that the phase three trials that have gone already did not include MR technology to evaluate that to any significant extent. Resmetarome has that data, so that will be very informative to be able to link liver biopsy to MR elastography, to MRI PDFF, and to some extent be in fiber scan as well, and our wet biomarkers. I 
uh, I would encourage as many pharma companies as possible to include all of these or as many of these NITs as you can in your paired liver biopsy phase two work because that will also be very helpful. What I don't know is, is MRE like MRI PDFF? I don't think it is in the sense that it's mechanism specific. In other words, not all drugs lower MRI PDFF but they still have a potential to impact histopathology. Do all drugs impact MR elastography the same way? I think that's an unknown question. Absolutely. And what the information that the liver stiffness is, is more than we can actually anchor it to one piece of that specific histopathology that we try to. We try to anchor it so much on fibrosis, but it gives us more than just that. The liver is stiff because of inflammation, because of congestion, different, different things, right? So I think there will be a gray zone if we do try to implement MRE in the clinical trial area where we will make all efforts to try to anchor it to the F stage. So let's say we we do a clinical trial and at whatever number of weeks, there's improvement in liver stiffness, but there's no change in fibrosis stage. F3 stays F3. Does that truly mean that there's no improvement in the drug? We won't know for as long as we're going to try to anchor it to all the little boxes we still have now. So there's going to be a learning experience and a little bit of wiggle room to allow for maybe more time to follow these people until we try to disentangle this liver stiffness story and message from still the little categories we use now. You mentioned the collagen. There's hopefully other parameters in the AI space of path, but we need to try to resist the urge of anchoring everything to the F stage. That's what I think will be the, the major learning experience. Well, look, I know we're getting close to time. Ian, you have a comment you want to make, and I want to circle back and maybe just give Alina a, a few minutes to touch on 3D MRE and where she sees the future of that. So I guess a couple of comments really. I think that point about not trying to anchor ourselves to a fibrosis stage is really important. There is an increasing and wealth now of observational data related to outcome prediction for elastography, both using ultrasound and using MR as we've just heard. And that combined with measures of liver function will allow us to identify populations of patients who are going to decompensate at a clinically evident rate. And that is better than a biopsy that shows cirrhosis and not really considering anything else. It's probably better than the perhaps even greater variability there is in measuring HVPG, which others have tried. My view is that this would allow us, and I can hear Naeem and Marsden shouting at the podcast saying, well, we could just forget the biopsy altogether and pick that population who is going to progress to an outcome quickly and do trials in that group in a sort of secondary prevention type design like the cardiologist did in the beginning to show that the drugs work. And I don't know whether you could persuade the regulators to do that in parallel with a sort of non-serotic biopsy-based biopsy-controlled study, the way that they were sort of advocating at the webinar in January to say, look, here's an outcome study based on non-invasive tests, and here's a biopsy-controlled study in in the non-serotic population. Because now we know which patients will decompensate. We can select them using non-invasive tests, and we can select them at, at high probability, and we've got treatments that we could use. And the big challenge is whether we can just get away from the biopsy altogether. The challenge with that is you want to pick a population at baseline that is likely to progress relatively quickly. But you also want to pick a population at baseline that still has a chance to respond to your drug. And so there's a sweet spot there. If you pick patients that are too advanced, it's unlikely in my mind that we're going to be able to, in a relatively short period of time, back that patient up quick enough to prevent them from progressing. On the other hand, if we pick too mild of a cirrhotic population, we might be able 
able to impact their disease natural history and even histopathologically show improvement, but the placebo group isn't going to progress over a short period of time to decompensation either. So this is this is the conundrum. It, I don't know if we're going to be able to get away without some longer-term trials, whether it's histology or whether it's an NIT. Either somebody's going to get really lucky with picking the right patient population, or we're going to enroll a volume of patients collectively over a longer period of time, and then we'll tease apart the right numbers. It's going to be challenging one way or the other, but it can be done. I think it needs to be done, and the work that Alina and her group at Mayo are certainly causing all of us to think about it and how we can begin to incorporate it into our drug development platform. Yes, Stephen, that makes great sense to me. And as I was listening to this conversation, I've been thinking about how long the Framingham study had to run before people started believing what it had to say about heart disease. And that all looks crystal clear in hindsight, but it took a couple of decades before people were willing to trust that data to anywhere near what it's worth. We don't necessarily have a couple of decades here, but we need, I think, to impose some kind of discipline on our expectations, understanding that as urgent as we need to be, the data is only going to move so far. So we need to be practical about the fastest way to get there, but understanding also that that might not be as fast as some people would like it to be. Let me, let me close uh, as we begin to wrap up. Let me ask Ian and, and Alina this question. Maybe start with Ian. Well, the same question, but maybe Ian respond and Alina. What do you see as the next steps in your work in Leeds or at Mayo to address the concerns that were raised today? So I'll tell you what we're thinking about doing, and that is to, so at the moment we've got a cohort of 3,000 patients that is recruited from two big centres and outcomes are followed through electronic health records, so automatically. And that means that if you could find a way of capturing that data more widely, you could repeat that study in 10,000 patients, tens of thousands of patients. And so what we're intending to do is to try and extend it so that we can look at a much larger data set and in that way then develop scores which will give um, a bit like the like the Framingham risk calculator a probability of decompensation liver-related death, HCC, over five to ten years. It'll take a bit of time for that data to mature, but that's, but that's where we're going because that is the way that we see for patients, A, to understand their risk of future events, but also a way to identify which patients are going to be suitable for therapy based on future risk of events, which is much better defined by measures of stiffness and liver function than it is by a biopsy. I don't know that that, that really answers the challenges that have come up, but that's the way that I see us heading. And, and in many ways, that's the way I see the field heading. Fair enough. That's going to be fantastic when you're able to continue to mine that data and generate that data for us. All right, Alina, what do you think? My next step in pursuing this line is taking this to the population-based level. We've done work in MRE We've done work to show that we can even predict NASH in the 3D MRE population. We can link this to outcomes, but I have really a good understanding that we cannot apply MRE to the population level. That's just not feasible, just as biopsy is not feasibly applicable to applicable to a large uh, data set. So the next step is to risk stratify. My program is going to be focused on using real-world data that people have from their routine healthcare assessments to risk stratify those who need to be funneled towards these non-invasive tests. That's where the work will be even when we have the drugs. If we want to choose F2s and F3s for, for treatment, how do we select those population from the millions of people, knowing that those with cirrhosis are in the single digit percent, right? Two to three percent. How do we find those people who are in the middle? I think that's where the world needs more work. There's great work done from registry databases. We need to do more work at population 
application level because that's where the pool will be once the drugs are available. And that's what we're going to to have to deal with for, for the next few decades. People at large who have no idea they have fatty liver disease. So my work will focus on that as next step, knowing that if I identify a subgroup of people who need to be put through these more state-of-the-art non-invasive testing, then some of the battle is, is accomplished and identifying those who we do not need to worry about and, and separate them. Makes sense. Louise, do you have any closing comments or thoughts before we go to final question? No, I think I agree with everything that's been said. Moving forward, being able to use any liver stiffness to be able to quantify improvement or deterioration is actually a benefit. We all want to move in the right direction and we need to select those populations, but we do need to get to the right people funneled in for the right tests like the MRE and the stronger that data becomes the better we're in a position to help the patient portfolios that we've got. Thanks then. Final question to everybody. The one thing we've discussed today that you think will have the greatest impact on treatment of patients say two three years from now. It's an artificial time frame. If you want to say I don't know about two or three but I'll tell you about five that's that's final. So we've talked about a lot of stuff today and ultimately it meets the road where it helps where it supports how we treat patients. So let's pick a time frame and go for it. Brave one first. For me the, the biggest takeaway is this trying to, to step away from the box that histology gives us. That's where the biggest bang for the buck would be, be it MRE or some other way. That's my hope that the clinical trials will move towards. Thanks, Alina. Next. So I'd say a very similar thing to Alina, though I think the two to three year time frame is still probably a bit ambitious to get away from biopsy altogether. We're beholden to this ordinal scale construct that is zero to four and we have to forget it. Got better data. We've got better information with MRE, virus scan. We can prognosticate better for patients. Okay, thanks, Ian Louise. Yeah, I think part of what I was listening to, if I got it right, it was the connection that Stephen was making that we use MRE and we use these techniques in as many of the trials as we can because we can show outcomes with MRE data and other non invasive results. The stronger the data becomes for the outcomes, the stronger the argument grows that we don't need biopsy. So adding the best tools that we have available to get the best outcome with Stephen's idea, connecting and getting as many of these in the same areas as possible just gives us stronger and stronger information. Yeah, to me it reminds me of one of those old war movies where you're on the plane and you hear this hoofbeat. It's it's growing louder and louder and louder and next thing you know it's the cavalry coming around the corner and 10,000 horses and the hoofbeats of non-invasive tests, the work that both of you guys, are, Ian and Alina and others are doing, are growing louder and louder and louder. It's just a matter of time before we reach consensus on pivoting away from what we've grown accustomed to, which is the imperfect standard of liver bias. But nobody, you know, change is hard. Who wants to be the one that makes that first change? You're either a hero or you're a goat. The more data we have to support the decision, obviously it, it will become easier and easier to make that happen. I think for me, what I take away from this is I see an opportunity. Lena, we're finishing up a paper right now where it's focused on some of the challenges with clinical trial enrollment. And I see an opportunity to add a piece here relative to MRE as a predictor of outcomes where we can begin to add to that hoofbeat and increase the noise around pivoting to a non-invasive test for drug development and for clinical practice looking at outcomes. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I have two thoughts. Number one, Stephen's hero or goat thing. I'm mindful of the idea that in today's language, goat stands for greatest of all time. So maybe you can be the goat or the goat or somewhere in the middle. Second, on a on a 
slightly more serious note, I find myself being pulled back to thinking about big data. And big data are places where you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of cases with missing records or missing variables. And the challenge becomes, can you find a way to intuit logic out of the cases you've got, even with the missing records that exist? Now, the discipline in MedStat is so much greater than it is in, say, marketing stats that that would be infinitely harder to do. But conceptually, it feels like we've got, well, at least the two sources in this meeting and several others, banging on this door that goes, okay, provide meeting to long-term data using data sets that aren't entirely compatible, but may be able to teach us lessons that, that we can integrate in the kind of situation Stephen's talking about and therefore amp up the drumbeat of the footsteps even faster than we would otherwise. I don't know how one brings that together. Statistically, it's an interesting challenge. But if there were a way to do it or a way to conceptualize it, it might actually speed the process considerably. Or I could be dead wrong, by the way, because this isn't what I do for a living. But I will tell our listeners that at least half the half of this group are nodding, maybe because they're being polite, maybe because we agree. But we'll take this up in a future podcast. Other comments before we go, anybody? Then with that, um, Alina, thanks so much. For, and Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Louise, safe home tomorrow. Stephen, thanks for uh, taking up some of the banner of actually moderating podcast. That was great. And uh, we will see you, all you folks again next week. Uh, everybody say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so Good much job. for the invitation. Okay. And thanks for being here, Alina. And I will be back with the business section in a few minutes. Bye-bye now. Welcome to today's episode 52 business section. Today's business section is a little shorter than last week's. It also provides a lot of good information. So be patient. Won't take long. 281, 30,775, and 6. These are three important, somewhat related audience numbers for us. 30,775 is the total bus route download count from last July through 4 o'clock Tuesday afternoon. For the three most recent times we've leaped past the 5,000 barrier, 15,000, 20,000, 25,000, we've gone at least seven to eight weeks between leaps. But to get from 25,000 to 30,000, it took less than six, which is why the number six is here. 281 is the number of people who downloaded Conversation 46.2, the 13-minute Paris Nash cutout I keep talking about. We have 47 new listeners to this brief conversation this week, which is four more than the biggest week yet. At this pace, it will become our most listened to post in the next two weeks or shortly thereafter. That's a little surprising for a conversation. Even more so when you know that listenership for episodes 50 and 51 and their conversations has been fairly robust. I guess some of you are telling us some of the content you'd like to hear more often, and we are listening. Stay tuned. Spoiler alert for those who will get the What's in the Vault letter on Friday. The fastest grower from season 21 was episode 28, with Stephen jumping off from a successful 89 bio trial to discuss market growth and clinical trial results and more broadly to talk about the FGFs, both 21 and 19. Remember, Alda Furman was still very much on the table at that point. The fastest grower from season two that's more than six weeks old is episode 44, which discussed fatty liver disease and COVID and how they interacted. This episode started slowly, but it's picked up listeners significantly over the last couple of weeks. Tentative planning for the next three conferences. I have some information about the three conferences we will cover in the rest of 2021. We will have live AASLD panels on Sunday of that week and Monday. I believe those are the 14th and 15th of August. And Sunday, we'll have key panels. Monday, we'll have late breakers and some other panels. Saturday, we're still resolving whether and how to bring you content from the all-day postgraduate course on NAFLD and NASH. All suggestions on how to bring content, welcome here. We will also cover two conferences with one-day summaries in December. The fifth Global NASH Summit and the Radiology Society of North America meeting. Both take place right after Thanksgiving, so we're working to decide in what order to present them. Both will be worthwhile, though. Welcome, Diapharma Group. 
I want to welcome Diapharma Group to our team of sponsors. You've heard about Diapharma's devotion to this podcast already because the story I tell from time to time about the woman who's known as the woman from Nash Tsunami to her co-workers and gives reports at staff meetings, she comes from Diapharma. So we're happy to have them with us and we're tend to live up to the faith they've shown in us so far. And I'm confident that we'll have at least one, maybe two, three, even four new sponsors to announce by year's end. A lot happening on that note. So with all that, I want to finish by thanking our exceptional team, Mike Wilson, Eric Brown, Steve Ennin, and mostly the most critical element of our team, you, our listeners, provide energy and inspiration every week to keep doing this, even as we find new numbers and new strengths and as the weather gets cold and rainy and okay, I'm going to stop being cranky. With all that, I'm very excited about reactions to this episode that you just heard. We have interesting stuff coming up next week as well, so stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.